Take your Bible and go back to the book of Philippians. As we look at this passage once again, you'll recall that we looked at this chapter a few weeks ago, and often I don't have an opportunity to preach back to back or in close proximity to each other. So when I knew that pastor was going to be gone, uh, two different times that were in close, uh, close relationship to each other, I was excited because gave me the opportunity to look at a more extended passage of scripture and uh, delve into each of those individual passages in a little bit more detail. So this morning, we're going to continue the passage that we looked at just a few weeks ago. And uh, when we did that, we saw that Paul was communicating the immense value of Christ, that he is above all else valuable. And yet, we don't often live in that way. Often we look at the things of this world, whether it is our ambitions or our job, and we treat those things that are petty, insignificant, and worthless in comparison to Christ. We consider those things as having or holding significant value. And we're like that little girl that I told you about uh, the last time we met together when we looked at this passage, who made that trade with her brother. Do you remember that? She had this shiny 50-cent piece, and he traded her that shiny 50-cent piece for a flimsy paper $10 bill. And she was excited because she was able to get something that she thought was valuable, but in reality, it was a far significant value. As we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see a problem that the brother had. The brother who traded um, the... uh, um, the, the, the one that traded the 50 cent piece for the $10 bill, he got that $10 bill and he had a problem too. For he kept that dollar bill in his drawer and every once in a while, he would pull it out and he would look at it and he would consider and he would revel in the value that that $10 bill had. And then he would take it and put it back in the drawer and go about his day. The problem was that he did not access the value that that $10 bill had. He never spent it. It sat in his drawer, and he never used it for its intended purpose. What we're going to see this morning is that this passage reveals a similar problem that we have. We can understand the glories of Christ in the incarnation. We can grasp the truths of the gospel and all that Christ has accomplished for us, and we can be satisfied with that. A mere intellectual understanding and grasping of the value of Christ but we do not know and appreciate the the relational value that we have in Christ. We don't grow in our relationship with Christ. Instead, we remain satisfied with what we understand about who he is and what he has done for us. We do not let it impact how we live or the relationship that we have with him. And if you recall at the beginning of this chapter, Paul gives a warning against those who were adding to, they were adding external works of righteousness to salvation. They were trying to add things like circumcision or dietary laws, saying that in order to truly be saved, you had to believe in Christ, but also you had to adhere to some of these other external works of righteousness. And Paul is refuting that. And he starts off by saying this, if anyone could be saved through works of righteousness, it would be me. 
And he goes through and he lists all the things that he has accomplished in his life spiritually. He talks about all the things that he has inherited spiritually. We saw last time that we looked at this passage that Paul said those things are worthless. And he was making that comparison of gains and losses. And all those things that the people would look at and think of as gains, his righteousness, his heritage, Paul says, I count them as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. When Paul does does a side-by-side comparison of his gain and losses, what that comparison reveals is that all of his past spiritual achievements and his spiritual heritage are both less than significant when held up to the glories of a saving relationship with Christ. And he goes on to say that everything he has accomplished and all of those things that he has lost and the sufferings that he, that he has endured, all of those pale in comparison to the surpassing value of Christ. And he even goes far as to say this, he counts them as refuse. Why? So that he may gain Christ. In verse 9, he talks about what it means to gain Christ. And he says this in verse 9, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That word found there carries the idea of identity or uh, the fact that he is discovered in Christ. There are a lot of things that Paul could have found his identity in. It could be his works of righteousness that were listed at the beginning of this chapter, his spiritual heritage. It could have been who he was as a person, how God had used him up until this point. Um, probably the most, most well-known Christian of his day, one of the most foremost missionaries, starting churches all over the known world. He could have found his identity in that. But yet Paul says this, gaining Christ is more than being doing the work of God and being accomplished in spiritual things. But rather, Paul says, gaining Christ means that he has been found in him. That idea of being in him or being in Christ is just pervasive throughout Paul's writings. He uses that term um, over 70 times. And while much could be said about what that, um, what that phrase means, we can simply understand it as the fact that we, as people, when we trust Christ as our Savior, we enter into a personal, intimate relationship with Christ where his identity becomes our identity. And Paul says, it's almost like he's coming to a crescendo uh, of this passage He gains Christ, and then he is found in him. Identity. All of us have an identity. All of us seek to be known um, as someone or known by something that we do. We sometimes can seek our identity in our job, and that kind of sets us off as who we are, and we want people to recognize that we have this responsibility or, or this job. Sometimes we can find our identity in the things that we've accomplished, or we can find our identity in the things that we are interested in, or we find our identity in our family. And Paul's exhortation to us here is all of those things, though they are good and right and and, and helpful, they are nothing in comparison to the identity that we have being in Christ. 
This idea of being in Christ is almost a shock to our system when we think of the reality of who Christ is and who we are. Sinful human beings who, who before God are nothing. We ask ourselves this question. We are found in Christ? What? How is this even possible? And what does it mean for us to be found in Christ? Paul then goes on to give us two ideas or perspectives or realities of what it means to be in Christ. And those things all center around the relationship that we have with Christ. And so the exhortation here that Paul is giving us is to go beyond the mere understanding in our brains of what it means to be saved and to move beyond that into understanding and living in the relational aspect that we have with Christ because we are found in him. And the first thing that Paul talks about is the security that we have because we are in Christ. That security, though, comes not where we might expect it or where people often look for it. Paul says this, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The focus of these verses is righteousness. You see that come up a number of different times. Paul says this, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this righteousness that Paul is talking about is something that makes us secure, but it has a source that is outside of ourselves. Because as we have seen before, even, even when we looked in the previous verses, human righteousness is insufficient before God. And as we look at the life of Paul, we say if anybody's righteousness could meet the standard, it could be Paul's righteousness. He lays that out very clearly in the first part of this chapter. And we read all of those seven different things that Paul has that could be accounted for his righteousness. And we say, Paul, you have the righteousness that certainly is acceptable before God. And Paul says, no, not having a righteousness that is of my own. There is no human effort that can uh, satisfy the righteousness that we need before God. And as we saw before, not only is this righteousness insufficient, but the righteousness that Paul had was even condemning. Why? Because the only thing that can save is Jesus Christ. It is looking at his finished work on the cross and dependence upon that. And so when we look at our own righteousness, though it is right and it is good to live in a righteous way, yet when we look at those acts of righteousness as somehow meriting favor before God, they not only become insufficient, but they become condemning before a righteous and a holy God. This righteousness that Paul is talking about here, he says, it's a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I am not secure in Christ because of a righteousness that I have in and of myself that comes from trying to keep the law because the law is, we are unable to keep the law perfectly. 
Even all the good works of righteousness that Paul had, he still fell short in keeping the law uh, perfectly. And Paul understands this, and he says that, that my identity of being in Christ and the relationship that I have with him is not based upon my own righteousness from keeping the law. Looking to the law and meeting the law's demands can't save me. In fact, the law, as we try to keep it, does just the opposite. It shows us how insufficient we are. It shows us that we fail in keeping the law. And God designed the law not to make ourselves look good or to feel secure in the law, but to help to show us and to make us feel helpless so that we would run to Christ because of our insufficiency. This is the first step in understanding the gospel. It's understanding our sin, our inability to keep the law, and the just judgment that we deserve because we are outside of Christ and we deserve a penalty from God. Any effort that we put into obtaining a right standing before God will come up short and Paul's achievements that he has accomplished meant nothing. He holds no security in them. His identity is not in him. And therefore, he has to look outside of himself for this security, for this reality of being in Christ. And Paul goes on then to explain where does that security come from? If that security does not come from my attempt to keep the law, and somehow do enough to earn God's favor and standing of righteousness before him, if the security is not there, then where is it? How can I have it? We have to look outside of ourselves, and that is God's plan and his design. And the purpose of the law is that we would look outside of ourselves to obtain, obtain that security. And the answer is that the righteousness is found in Christ. He goes on in this verse, but that which comes, and he's speaking of a righteousness, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Contrasting with Paul's own efforts, which we've already talked about, we look at then the righteousness of Christ. And first, we ask ourselves, how then, if this righteousness comes through Christ, how then do we obtain this righteousness? And he starts off in this phrase, by saying it is faith. You see, the contrast that Paul is trying to make here is that there is effort that human beings put into being righteousness, into being righteous. And they work towards righteousness and keeping God's law. And it's all about them looking at what God says and trying to do that. Or seeing what God says don't do and trying to avoid that. But every time we do that, we will come up short. And so Paul says, rather than trying to do something, it is simply a matter of faith. It depends on faith. And every honest person will admit that they fall short of keeping the law and they must look outside of themselves. And this righteousness then is a matter of faith. What is being highlighted here is the reality that we can't do anything and we must look outside 
of ourselves. Faith is simply believing something and then acting upon that belief. And we do this every day, often without thinking about it. You came into this auditorium and you saw the pew and you sat down. There was an aspect there where you were depending upon that seat to hold you up. You get into your car and you depend upon that car to get you to get from point A to point B. We make, we make acts of dependent faith all the time. The difference here, though, is the object of our faith in salvation is sure. It's possible that the pew you sat in could break. It's possible that the car you're traveling to work could break down. There is no absolute guarantee that the things that we put our faith in on an everyday basis will come to pass. But when we look to the object of Christ, he is 100% secure. We are 100% secure in that object. Being in him is not dependent then on what an individual can do, but on what they are trusting and depending on, and that object is Christ. It is faith in Christ. On the road to Damascus, Paul came face to the face with that risen Christ. And he saw Christ in all of his glory. And in that blazing light, Paul understood the magnificence of Christ's righteousness could not compare to Paul's attempts at righteousness. And so he looked in faith to Christ and believed. Christ as the God-man, as the perfect Son of God, had perfect righteousness. Christ refrained from breaking any of God's law. And not only that, he completely fulfilled all that the law demanded. And when we set that righteousness in side-by-side -side comparison with the righteousness of man, our righteousness and man's righteousness falls incomparably short. And as God, Christ could keep the law perfectly, something that we could never do. And as a man, God, Christ, could die in our place. And through that then, we have salvation and we have security because we are in him. Not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice on the cross. Paul goes on in this passage, though, to show not only does our righteousness come from Christ, he is the object of our righteousness, but also that God declares us righteous the righteous that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why is it God that can, that can give us this righteousness? And that is because God's righteous, God is the ultimate judge. He is perfectly just. He is the one that makes the final decision as the ultimate judge. And because of what Christ did for us on the cross, he can look at us and declare us righteous before him. How is that possible? It's because we are in Christ through salvation. 
And so therefore, when we are in Christ, God sees us not in our sin, but he sees us through the lens of Christ's righteousness. God in Christ paid the penalty for the sin that we deserved. The just judgment for our sin was placed on Christ. God's wrath was satisfied. And so God can remain just in declaring unrighteous people righteous because of what Christ did. God is the ultimate judge. And that is where our standing comes from. It comes from God declaring us righteous, even when we are unrighteous. And he can do that because we are in Christ. This is ultimate security. Because of Christ, and because he lived a perfect life, and endured the just penalty for man's sin, God can judicially declare us righteous when we place our faith in Christ. We are in him, and we are secure in that. It is not ourselves. It is outside of ourselves. It is in Christ, and it is because of God. This is the gospel. This is the reality that every person must come to grips with. Their own righteousness will always fall short. And therefore, they must look to some other source of righteousness to be made right with God. And that source of righteousness is Christ. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are depending upon your own righteousness for a right standing before God. Understand that that righteousness that you are trying to accomplish is insufficient. Our own righteousness, the, right, the righteousness of every person in this room is insufficient. Look to Christ, his death on the cross. Trust him for salvation. And through that, you can become in Christ and be secure in your standing before God. Paul has just laid out in this verse how a sinful man can be declared righteous. And it's a truth that is astounding as it is glorious. Now, Paul looks himself and what Christ has just done for him, and he is absolutely overwhelmed with this reality, that he is secure in Christ, not because of what he's done, but because of what Christ has done. And Paul goes on in this passage and exclaims this after understanding this truth of being secure in Christ. He says, I want to know him. I want to know this Christ who makes me secure through his death. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship um, uh, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This heart cry of Paul to know Christ is the natural, inevitable result of every person who has been declared righteous by God in Christ. Every person that truly understands what Christ has done for him will respond in this way. I want to know him. But we are so distracted by the things of this world that we come to a church service and we listen to preaching or we read our Bibles and we understand 
intellectually what the text is saying and we grasp it in our minds and perhaps we even rejoice in that to a certain degree but we let it stop there and we don't let that truth affect our day-to-day life and our relationship with Christ we can be secure because of the because of what Christ has done for us and we want to grow through our relationship with Christ. Verses, uh, verse 9 was all about what, what we call justification, being made right before God. Verses 10 and 11 are all about what we might call sanctification, our growth in Christ and our growth to become more like Christ and our growth to know Christ. And as, as we see here with Paul, it is his singular, um, it is his singular pursuit To know Christ personally is what Paul wants to know. It was a lifelong pursuit of Paul. As you read throughout his letters, you see that that was his one desire. He gave himself to that. He saw Christ's glory, and he wanted to know more. Now again, if we look at Paul's life, we ask ourselves this. If anyone knew Christ, it was Paul. If anyone could say, I know Christ, it was Paul. Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, was confronted with Christ himself. He had revelations from Jesus himself. He is being taught by Christ. Paul, certainly, you know Christ. And Paul says, I do, but I want to know him more. What kind of knowledge is Paul talking about here? As we've already stated, this is more than just a mind understanding of, of, of the scriptures and of, of Christ. But this is a know by personal study, to know him personally and experientially. Someone put it this way. We have largely lost the biblical dimensions of the word knowledge in our customary use of it. We confine this idea of knowledge to the contents of the brain. And the Bible would not disagree with its meaning, but neither does it accept it as a full definition. Because when the Bible uses the word knowledge in this passage, it's talking more than just a head knowledge. It's a knowledge experientially and personally. There is a practical aspect of this knowledge. And Paul is caught up in this glorious reality that Jesus is everything. He owes everything to Jesus. And he wants to know him more. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as we read this and think about what Paul is saying here is is this. Does our heart cry, does your heart cry reflect what Paul is saying here? When was the last time you came before the scriptures or you came before the Lord and you said, I want Jesus to know you more? Why is it that we don't do that? Why is it that our desire to know Christ does not rise to this level? Why is it? that we are satisfied with merely knowing about Jesus and understanding his word intellectually, and we do not yearn to desire and to know Christ personally 
and experientially. And the problem is that we are satisfied with other things. We can be satisfied with the, the, the knowledge of him, knowing him and his scriptures. There's a certain satisfaction that comes as we hear the scriptures taught or we read them ourselves to go through a passage and to say, yes, I understand that truth and that truth is amazing. That truth about who God is. That truth about how God relates to me. That truth that God shows me is amazing. And we can be satisfied with that. And we go on throughout our day merely just saying, that's an amazing truth. Rather than letting that truth impact us in a relationship, in a relational way with our Savior. But often, we are also uh, satisfied not only with a mere intellectual, but we are also uh, satisfied with other things, uh, the ambitions of our hearts, the simple pleasures of living, our career, or our money. They overrule what ought to be our, prime, our primary goal and desire. We seek after these other things. We give ourselves to other things. We give ourselves to knowing in an experiential and relational way other things, whether it's our job or our hobbies or our families or our interests or whatever. We give ourselves to those and we cry, I want to know those things when we ought to cry, I want to know him. I want to know him. There's a difference between merely knowing about someone and entering into personal relationship with someone. We must enter and grow in our relationship with Jesus. Paul wants to know him in, an, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a personal and experiential way. And he goes on to talk about more than what that looks like. And he says this, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Power, uh, Paul was not speaking of a merely intellectual understanding about the resurrection any more than he was speaking about an intellectual understanding of knowing Jesus. He was saying here that he wants to know and personally experience the power that the resurrection demonstrated personally, and he wanted to understand that power in a practical way. And we could put it this way, Paul desired to live a godly life. Because the power of the resurrection demonstrates power over death, over sin, and over Satan. When the resurrection occurred, everyone thought that Jesus was to remain dead physically. And yet, he rose to life. The power of the resurrection. In addition to that, when Christ rose from the dead physically, he was demonstrating that he had broken the power that sin had held over mankind. And when Jesus rose from the dead physically, he was demonstrating the power over Satan and his rule. And Paul says, I want to know and experience the power of the resurrection in my life experientially. Though we have been saved, we all still struggle with sin. And you may go throughout your day feeling defeated, feeling like I can't get over this sin. Sin is inevitable. There's nothing I can do about it. And so we give up and we give in. But the reality is, is that the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus broke the power of sin in our lives. 
Here's what Paul said in Romans 6. We are buried therefore with him, Christ, by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what God wants. That's what the resurrection can give us. It can give us new life, power over sin. And Paul says here, I want to live in the power of that resurrection. I want to live a godly life. And this is what each one of you that sits here as a believer must yearn for and long for, to know the power of the resurrection experientially in your life. Why? Because you are in Christ, not on your own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ, the power of the resurrection, victory over sin, godly living, the ability to resist the pull of the flesh and the world. It is not impossible to live a holy life. It is possible through Christ to have victory over sin and to live godly. And that's why the hymn writer put it this way, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. It is the blood of Christ. It, and then the resurrection that gives us the ability to live a pure and righteous life before God. This was Paul's desire. I want to know Christ. And he pursued that with a single focus. There was once a boy who was sitting in the bleachers at um, a local high school. And as he was sitting there, he was watching a basketball game uh, being played. And he became mesmerized with those guys on the court as they maneuvered around each other. Uh, he was mesmerized with their ball handling skills and the accuracy with which they were able to take that ball and to put it in the hoop from seemingly anywhere on the court. And at that moment, he made a decision that someday he was going to play on the high school basketball team. And that changed his priorities. Now, he would finish his lunch quickly at school and head to the basketball court to shoot free throws. After school, when he would go home, he would finish his homework as quickly as he could and get out in, uh, to his, his, his driveway to play basketball. Every summer, rather than doing all the normal things that his friends were doing, he was going to every basketball camp he could so that he could accomplish that goal. And the day came for tryouts. And all that work that he had, paid, that he had done paid off. And he made that basketball team. He had a singular pursuit. For what? For something that is relatively insignificant, making the basketball team. And yet, he was willing to give up some of the other pleasures that he could have enjoyed because he was, he was going after a goal and a purpose. How much more is knowing Christ greater than anything we could pursue in this life? You must give up the worldly ambitions that grip your heart. You must give up those other pursuits and you must pursue Christ wholeheartedly. But not only did, did uh, Paul desire to be like Christ and make that his singular pursuit, but he also desired to become like Christ. Knowing Christ and becoming like Christ. Here's what he says. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul desired to share in Christ's sufferings. This does not mean that he wanted to suffer for human sin, for that was something no man could do. Jesus is the only one that could suffer like that. But what Paul is saying is that Paul wanted to be so identified with Christ and stand with Christ in such an individual, indivisible union that he would suffer for Christ in the same way that Christ suffered for his sins. And he wanted to respond like Christ in that same way. The Bible says that sufferings are an expectation for every believer. The degree of those sufferings differ in time and in culture and in place. But all of us should expect some measure of suffering, some measure of resistance as a believer. Because what does that show when we are experiencing resistance? It's showing we are living out the light of Christ. Because those that are in the world, those that are following Satan, hate the light and resist the light. So when we live in a godly way and we feel that resistance, we know that we are living in a Christ-like way. And Paul says, I want to participate in that type of suffering and stand with Christ in that way. And Paul wanted to, in that way, respond like Christ. How did Christ respond? He responded with um, joy. He responded with forgiveness. And he responded with submission to that. And you also then must seek to endure suffering in that way, sharing in his sufferings. Paul goes on to say he wants to become like him in his death. This phrase reveals Paul's desire to be obedient in the faithful proclamation of the gospel of Christ, just like Jesus had been faithful. And to understand this phrase, we can go back in the book of Philippians to Philippians 2, um, verse 2, where Paul says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul desired to be obedient to become like him in his death. Paul says, I want to be obedient to that extent as well. Paul's goal of being found in Christ was not just a present reality, but it was a future hope. It was a future expectation that is the reality for all believers. And that's where Paul had his sights set. And that's how he finishes this section in verse 11. He says this, that by any means possible, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He is desiring to be like Christ right now, and he knows that someday he will be like Christ uh, forever. He says this, if by any means possible. That phrase there is not talking about some sort of uncertainty that Paul had about losing his salvation or missing heaven. In Romans chapter 8, he makes it very clear that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The statement does not express uncertainty, but rather it expresses a humility that Paul is um, showing by saying, it's not in and of himself, it's through Christ 
that someday he will be made perfect. He may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He's looking forward to that day when someday all of us will be raised from the dead and we will stand before God in our earthly, little by little, moment by moment, growth in Christ and sanctification will be complete. And we will be like Christ forever. No longer to struggle with sin. No longer to battle the flesh. No longer to be allured by the temptations of the world. But we will be perfect. We will be like Christ. And we get to join in Christ in that resurrection. Paul is looking forward to that future day. That's where his sight is set. Why is that possible? Why is that his hope? Because he has been found in Christ. Not based on his own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And that compels him then to know Christ personally and to look forward one day to being glorified eternally. Every day we should be amazed that as believers we are identified as being in Christ we are absolutely secure in our standing before God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because we are in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness and God has declared us righteous. Do you have that security? If you do not have that security, the Bible offers it and it can be yours. And since Christ offers that security, he must be our singular pursuit. We must be willing to put aside all other ambitions. We must resist the temptation to merely understand the word of God and understand Christ on the intellectual level, but we must pursue Christ relationally every day through Bible study and prayer and earnest meditation upon the word of God. You must grow in your relationship with Christ. You must strive to be like Christ. What things are preventing you from pursuing Christ in this way? Reject those things today and by God's grace determine to pursue him completely above all else. And God will give you the grace to do that, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful to you that we have your righteousness, that in your plan through Christ, you can look at us and say, righteous. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to pursue you above all else, that we would grow in our relationship with Jesus, and that we would put aside all other things to pursue you. We ask these things because of Christ. Amen.